You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm Stephanie Hafley, the Deputy Director of Academic and Student Programs and a Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. About a year and a half ago, the Hayek Program started a research project on work independency to explore the notion and philosophy of work and the responsibility and challenges associated with welfare provided by individuals, civil society, and government. To better understand these topics and find ways to encourage and support scholarship in this arena, we wanted to focus on the changing technology, norms, opportunities, and challenges of today and tomorrow. We are honored to be able to partner with the Niskanen Center, particularly Samuel Hammond, the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy, to put on this conference on the future of work. We also hope this is just the beginning of the conversation. Technological innovation is a driving factor of economic growth that both disrupts current practices and creates new opportunities. As a society, we tend to both yearn for and caution against technological change, and economists, policymakers, and the general public have an interest in how technology will impact our society. What is the role of markets, civil society, and government in shaping the future of work and technology? What does social scientific and policy analysis have to say about these changing dynamics? And how do those social scientists and policy analysts interested in promoting an open society seek to understand and suggest democratic solutions to collective challenges that treat citizens as dignified equals? As part of this conference on the future of work, there were four keynote lectures to kick off the discussion. It is my honor to in introduce our first keynote speaker, Glenn Weil. Glenn is the Microsoft's Office of the Chief Technology Officer, Political Economist, and Social Technologist at Microsoft, as well as the founder of the Radical Exchange Foundation. Prior to joining Microsoft, Glenn was a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows and an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. He uses ideas from political economy to develop social technology for widely shared prosperity and social cooperation which is the theme of his recent book with Eric A. Posner, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society, which came out in 2018 from Princeton University Press. His talk today is on choosing a dignified future for work. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, I, I particularly appreciated the way that Stephanie teed this up. Uh, I, I thought I was going to have to start out by going after the usual narrative that accompanies the phrase, the future of work. Uh, but Stephanie, I think, framed the problem exactly as it should be. Uh, nonetheless, I will go after that narrative, but not <laughs> attribute it to you. Um, so um, so uh, the argument that I really want to make today is that the usual narrative about the rise of automation the way that's going to displace jobs, the way that necessitates universal basic income, et cetera, et cetera, is not just confused and wrong, but is actually dangerous and is, to a large extent, responsible for the precise problems that it claims to be addressing. Um, so what is that usual narrative? Uh, I just took this uh, straight off of like the main page of Andrew Yang's website. So he says, in the next 12 years, one in three Americans risk losing their job to new technology, and unlike with previous waves of automation, this time jobs will not appear quickly enough to make, and in large enough numbers to make up for it. So I think it's fair to say that this is, if not the dominant, among the dominant narratives, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, it's very tied up in a narrative about AI and the singularity and blah, 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 blah. So um, I think this narrative is like missing what's actually going on with the technology. And by the way, I think actually most 
unlike like Silicon Valley executives and Kurzweil types or whatever, most AI researchers would actually agree with most of what I'm about to say. So I, I think it's, it's, it's really an issue of like the way things at a big level are framed to the public and to the industry rather than like what the technologists are actually doing. But um, the, the truth is that what we call machine learning and automation is really just another form of the technologies that we've always had, which is you put a bunch of labor together. That labor, through some partially scaled process, produces in a way that's more efficiently together than if it were separated, and it produces some output that then needs to be shared in some way by an economic system. And just to give an illustration of this, like um, if you haven't all noticed, like whenever you have to go on these websites, they force you to like identify various things. And somehow this just seems to have some like really weird relationship to like whatever the latest AI thing you've heard on the news is. So it's like, oh, just driving cars. Oh, now I'm looking at a bunch of, you know, crosswalks and streetlights and whatever. Or, oh, they're trying to do like reading receipts. Oh, I now need to like read some things off receipts when I'm enrolling in this website. So like the dynamic of what's actually going on here, I think is really well captured by this XKCD cartoon, which says, to complete your registration, please tell us whether or not this image contains a stop sign. Um, yes or no, answer quickly, our self-driving car is almost at the intersection. Um, so much of AI is just figuring out ways to offload work onto random strangers. And, you know, they, they have these subtexts on these KCD things. So if you hover over it, it says, um, uh, crowdsourced cabbie is so much less sexy than self-driving car. Um, so uh, I think the reality is like machine learning, all these machine learning systems take massive amounts of data that are produced by people who aren't getting paid for the work that they're doing to create that data and then produce some system and say, it's magic. Your job has been automated away. The computer has done it without any human input. Um, and like, that doesn't have to be the way that we think about technology. The whole rhetoric around AI the whole like discussion of automation is premised on the notion that like the direction that technology is going in is just like in massive ways replacing human beings. But there are like many other ways we can think about and direct technology that are not based on that imaginary. For example, there's the idea of enhancing human beings. There's the idea of biotechnology. There's the idea of using things like artificial, I'm sorry, um, augmented reality and virtual reality to allow people to collaborate more effectively at long distances and to share the internal states of their minds more effectively with other human beings so that many of the problems of the uh, you know, Tower of Babel and whatever go away. There's translation technologies. There's making machine learning models interpretable to human beings in ways that allows them to more effectively actually have decent data that isn't being completely misinterpreted so that a computer goes and like amplifies people trying to commit genocide in Myanmar. Um, there are, uh, you know, social technologies. There are um, political economic systems that allow better uh, cooperation among people. There are things, you know, blockchains being a popular example of that type of thing. All of these are different potential directions for technology, and I want to claim that actually this is kind of our collective choice. The way we choose to imagine the future of technology, the way that influences government policies, corporate agendas, venture capitalists, is going to determine the future that we actually end up having. And so the rhetoric around the inevitable course of technology leading to automation is actually by setting us upon that path, by making us think that that's what we have to do, uh, creating the very problem that, that it claims to be warning us about. Which, by the way, um, is one of the oldest themes of literature, that in the process of trying to address some problem, you often bring it about. I think that's precisely what's happening here. So I think, you know, we should be imagining a future more like, you know, the Federation and Star Trek and less like the Borg, you know, rather than saying, oh, everything's going to be automated. We're going to have luxury communism. We're just going to, you know, people are just going to get whatever they need and we're going to give them pot and money and they can just like go and enjoy themselves. We should be thinking, no, we're going to build a future where people have increasingly meaningful lives that are empowered by the removing of the aspects that are least human of the work that we have to do as human beings.
Okay, and, and that things allow us to collaborate more effectively at scale. So to, to lead you on this path, I want to start by, you know, starting with the AI vision, but then thinking about what is an alternative way that we could structure the same set of technologies that would um, enable human dignity. Um, and try to argue that this could be a significant pathway for the future of work. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, what libertarian-ish or economist-ish type people might say, like, what's the failure? Why isn't this just, like, already happening? Um, which I don't think is a very good way to pose the problem because I think, you know, there's always some complicated mixture of things. But, but I'll then talk about efforts to bring about a more dignified future, in particular, what, what sort of legislation and policy initiatives need to happen and where things are on that. But I'll also talk a little bit about the technology that would support that and try to use that as a way of illustrating how actually in just trying to thoughtfully through policy and technology um, address the problems that are raised by AI, we actually are led to the view of a different technology that is very different from uh, the way that AI imagines things um, and therefore shows us that really the future of technology and therefore of work is, is really under our agency. Okay, so I think that the key thing to realize about machine learning as opposed to previous waves of artificial intelligence, were, which were basically based around this notion of like logical systems where you have some brilliant programmer go in and code up something and then it's like a brain and it comes to life like Frankenstein and does whatever, is that m modern machine, you know, artificial intelligence is all based on machine learning. Machine learning is all based on massive amounts of human data, usually mostly labeled human data. And the work involved in doing this is not like, oh, I'm a brilliant coder at Facebook. Like most of the work involved in this is actually pretty darn blue collar. It's like labeling Im images of birds, you know, uh, uh, saying what's going on in streets, uh, cultural things that actually um, I think uh, humans um, and by humans I exempt like economists and you know computer scientists from that category are like really good at and like you know the like um, technocrats are not so good at like you know uh, culture and flirting and you know these are the things that computers are really bad at and that um, we have the capacity to teach them about and that actually the more sort of like prefrontal cortex oriented you are probably the worse you are at those things. Um, so uh, I actually think that if we were paying people for the work that they're doing to actually create these AI systems, if we were recognizing it as the work and contribution it was, uh, our whole dynamics around this would be quite different. Instead, what's happening is we're seeing the steady decline in labor's share of national income, really led in important part by the tech sector. So uh, there were, the New York Times tried to do a calculation of the labor share of Facebook and Google. Facebook was about 5%. Google was about 15%. These are the lowest labor shares of any uh, companies in the economy outside of the extractive industries sector. Um, and, uh, and it's not because, in, as in the extractive in industry sector, literally there's just like oil sitting there. It's that we're treating data created by human beings as if it were oil sitting in the ground. And in fact, you've heard that analogy probably many times, which is incredibly misleading because this is actually created by human interactions, human sociality, uh, human work. Um, and treating things that way is not efficient either. It's an incredibly unproductive way to deal with human beings. So uh, this was illustrated to me nicely by a video that Google put out um, where basically they were like imagining this future where the data was their client rather than human beings being their client. And so the way they, they imagine this is like, okay, if we want to know someone's weight, what are we going to do? We're not going to ask them their weight. What we're going to do is build a scale based on what we already know about their preferences that is like the perfect scale for them. Embed into it a tracker without them being aware of it. Put it on Amazon. Pay for it to be boosted up. And then have them buy that and then collect their weight that way. Now, as creepy and bizarre and whatever as that sound, I think the first thing you should recognize is it's like a wildly inefficient way to learn someone's weight. Like most of us know our weights for, for like one hundredth of the cost of that. You could just ask the person what their weight is rather than playing all these games. And like all this stuff about gamification, 
all this, I mean, we're, we're going through these like enormous contortions to get information that if we just were transparent with people about the way in which their inputs are aiding a system, they could do a far better job of, of giving us. And in fact, we're suffering because of that, the consequences of horrible quality data. Now, the stuff that manifests most to us is like fake news or whatever, but the truth is that that's just the tiny part that like makes it into the media and that we see most in our lives. The stuff that we are dealing with, trying to learn about facial recognition, trying to learn about um, self-driving cars, we get incredibly low quality uh, inputs because we put people in a context where they have no motivation, no ability to develop expertise, no ability to uh, develop a career around adding value, which is the way that labor markets actually produce productive output. So we end up with garbage in uh, garbage out systems because we disrespect the source of the value that's actually creating the system. Now, there is a growing industry of what um, Jaron Lanier and I call mediators of individual data that is trying to help address this issue. And the basic idea of a mediator of individual data is quite similar to um, what in the 20th century you might call a labor union, but that's not the only analogy. You might call it a professional organization. Um, even a university or an insurance plan has some analogies to it. Organizations that try to collectively organize people for a few different purposes. To collectively bargain for fair payment for their services. To provide guarantees of quality um, and to police members in a way that we wouldn't want necessarily a nation state to be doing. So you think about the issue of fake news. The idea of like Facebook or the a nation state just being like, this is fake news, this isn't, is unappealing for a variety of reasons if you believe in a pluralistic society. However, the notion of there being intermediary organizations that like churches, like unions, and so forth, that have standards that you have to live up to be part of them, is the way that in the past we have tended to try to deal with issues of ensuring quality, ensuring standards, ensuring um, that, uh, that, that people are actually delivering what they claim to be delivering. Universities obviously play an important role in that as well, peer review, academic disciplines, et cetera. Um, and third, these organizations would play a critical role in helping guide people's career, in helping to train them, in helping to uh, direct them towards what they're most likely to be successful in. And again, here's the digital version of that. You know, people are very frustrated about how their attention is being sapped, how they're be getting addicted to smartphones, et cetera. People need organizations to help direct their time. I mean, that's all. If you didn't, we wouldn't have universities. Universities play this huge role in funneling people through channels of self-development, and we think that within the digital context, these organizations could play that role as well. Now, I don't want to go too much into what these organizations are like. We have a HBR piece that you can read if you want more on it, but some of the properties that we think that they need to have is a fiduciary responsibility to the participants, both in a legal sense, in um, the sense of the financial structure of financing these organizations uh, would uh, have to be consistent with their goals and they need to not have conflicts of interest. They can't just be, some people have said, you know, the platform should just be fiduciaries. Well, at least with their current business model, that's crazy because they, they serve advertisers and they serve consumers. The interests of these two groups are not aligned. It's like having a lawyer for both sides of a case. Um, uh, Second, you know, they have to play this role in ensuring quality standards. And I think we've seen that that's actually very possible in the digital age with an appropriate business model and structure. You think of simultaneously the fact that we have all this crappy fake news and bad quality training data, and we have peak TV. We're getting some of the best artistic output because there actually is a much more thoughtful organization um, where there's actually the possibility for economic advancement and career development and so forth within the uh, television sector. And actually, that's not really true within music. And it, so, so you almost have these like controlled trials where you have different areas that have been organized in these different ways and we see that we're actually getting exceptional cultural output and excellence in certain areas and uh, under uh, uh, performance in others. Um, 
these organizations would have to think carefully about maintaining the provenance of data so that the moral rights of the people whose data are contributed into uh, these algorithms are protected, perhaps sometimes collectively, um, because a machine learning algorithm might, quote, anonymize away individual people's data, but collectively it might, for example, take the data of an African-American community in some part of Chicago and then, uh, you know, potentially use that for beneficial face recognition algorithms within, you know, government services or be used for punitive policing uh, in that area in a way that the community would not have been willing to collectively consent to. So there has to be some thought about uh, how to deal with those issues. You have to make sure that these organizations, while they become powerful enough to bargain with large-scale platforms, do not themselves become uh, exploitative and rent-seeking. And of course, there's going to be a huge amount of tension around how to make that possible. Uh, you know, democratic accountability plays a role, and it's probably not sufficient. Um, and at the same time, these have to have enough scale and competence to actually effectively bargain with and process the relevant information from uh, th these platforms. So an example the other day uh, that my wife was facing is, you know, Bank of America um, asked her to be able to ping her phone to know where she was making transactions to make sure there wasn't fraud going on. And she agreed to this. But then she realized that they had been pinging her 80 times a day. So there's absolutely no way that that was to verify transactions. What was actually going on is that they're trying to, you know, bundle that and, and use it for, I mean, it's hard to know actually. But, but the point is you should have an organization representing you that actually has the job of figuring that out and warning you don't sign up for this, this is not agreed to, et cetera. You need a fiduciary that actually represents you uh, for those purposes. And, and has people who are as good as the people that they're bargaining with uh, uh, to figure that out. These organizations are going to need to account for the types of, um, uh, you could almost call them public goods for companies, but, but for, from the perspective of an individual, things like healthcare, supporting uh, uh, individuals in the life cycle, that outside of a standard employment relationship, which these won't involve. These will involve you giving data and contributions and labeling and interactions in a variety of different contexts. So this is a much more dynamic world of work. Those are not going to be just provided by a single employer. It doesn't make any sense for that employer to be having that sole responsibility for their employee. So there needs to be some way to build out of that patchwork of interactions the support for the ins and outs of human life that you need to sustain someone who can actually contribute to this market. Um, and these organizations can't simply be based on the notion of, oh, we're just going to give the control to the individual. Because there's no way in the complexities of these marketplaces that an individual can just read all the terms and conditions, can know every possible use of machine learning. You need ways that provide meaningful agency to people to both collectively determine the parameters that the bargaining is based on and to individually tune things that are particularly relevant and likely to be heterogeneous across individuals rather than just giving them control to bargain for whatever they, they want. And finally, you need these organizations to have a certain amount of longevity and sort of solidity so that they don't just end up being fly-by-night, ICO, et cetera, things that can't be held to account uh, by anyone if um, it turns out in the future that they weren't living up to the commitments they made in the past. Okay. Um, so I, I really do believe that um, a future world in which people are aware of and are meaningfully um, contributing data in a variety of ways, everything from um, as you go about your daily work, uh, labeling various things, uh, explaining why in a, a Word document or something like that you made a correction that you did, um, explaining what you were doing in booking travel for someone, the, the, everything from those types of tasks 
to purely passive data, to creative output, to Skype conversations that you might be having, teaching people to do something else, being the basis of then learning to scale that teaching, playing video games and a system learning to play in the style that you do and recombining that with other people's styles to produce a new artificial intelligence player. All these sorts of things, I think, could eventually become sources of important pride for people uh, in, in their work lives. And there's a wonderful presentation that I encourage you to look at. I can't go through all of it now um, by uh, M. Eifler and Vi Hart, who are two of the most creative people I know in the world. They're part of um, my research group at Microsoft that really goes through a bunch of scenarios of meaningful, dignified, valuable lives that people could live through data contributions. Uh, one is about a, a child who, uh, in, in relationship with their parent, ends up earning um, some you know, uh, uh, money on the side, uh, contributing to an uh, educational thing. Another one is about a chef who produces uh, creative new recipes and then teaches uh, automated systems to make those recipes. Um, another one is about uh, musicians who, who work at a distance and combine together elements of their work and the way in which money flows back through the system uh, to them. And this is about a truck driver who is really skilled at dealing with really tricky situations and through her driving teaches uh, automated trucks to survive more difficult conditions. Um, now, what, what is the volume of, of this for the economy overall. Well, let's imagine that Andrew Yang's just right. Let's just grant him that for the moment. Let's say one third of the economy becomes dominated by automation in some way. So that's about $20,000 per person in the US at current uh, GDP. Um, currently, the labor share in the digital sector, as I mentioned before, is about 10%. Imagine that that increases to the historical average of 70%. Um, if the income that was uh, uh, added as a result of that were, was distributed as historically labor income has been, that would be about $20,000 a year for a typical family in the United States. Now, obviously, this depends on how large artificial intelligence becomes. But then again, so does all the like dystopian UBI, blah, blah, blah discourse depend upon that. Um, and in fact, I think there's a good reason to believe that by implementing a system like this, we would actually accelerate the progress of beneficial technological advance. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I think about in that regard is that um, if you've read uh, Robert Gordon's book about the rise and decline of American growth, what he really points out is that the fastest period of growth which was from about the 1920s to the 1970s, had a few features. One is that it happened during a period of fundamental institutional change that played a role in diffusing those technologies broadly, not just when the breakthroughs happened. So the big uh, changes occurred when you got an electrical grid that could actually serve a broad population, when you got labor unions that actually trained large parts of the population to be high quality participants in the industrial process, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I actually think that by building the institutions that can spread and diffuse the knowledge economy much more broadly, rather than leave it concentrated in a very small part of the population, you are likely to have a chance of getting back to these extremely high growth rates that we had during a limited period. We've had lots of technological advances since that period as growth has been going down. Computers have advanced, but, it, but the knowledge economy has not actually touched most of the economy. It stayed in this very narrow elite, and that's led to large growth rates for a very tiny set of people and very slow growth for the rest of the population. I think by building the set of institutions these mediators of individual data and many other things as well that can spread that process of the knowledge economy, we have a much better chance of uh, getting back to the types of growth rates that we had in that period. Okay, so the natural question might be, 
at least from a certain, again, libertarian and economistic perspective, like, why hasn't the market already done this? Like, if this is the right thing, why hasn't it happened? And I actually kind of hate that type of a way of framing uh, a problem because, A, it immediately denies agency to anything. It says, like, everything that's going to happen is just going to happen somehow. And, and it sort of, that just doesn't add up. If no one has agency over anything, then where is, where is things actually coming from? Um, but also, I, I really hate it because we don't live in, like, the market. We live in, like, some really complicated intertwining of collective decisions at a whole variety of different levels with market processes with blah 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 and so almost always for these things where we've like taken a wrong turn there's some combination of like the wrong set of like government interventions and the wrong set of social forces and the wrong set of expectations and the wrong set of market generated incentives and so forth so i, I would highlight a few things here one is on the one hand the platforms have enormous market power. So I was in, I was in Norway, and I met with an uh, old leader of the Norwegian Liberal Party, which is basically like their libertarian-ish party there. And it was really remarkable what this guy said to me. He said he'd never seen an organization as powerful as, and, and therefore frightening as Facebook and Google. You know, we talk about governments, et cetera. There are, I don't know that there's ever been so few people that command so much of the attention of so many people around the world as those organizations do. And it's almost unimaginable how people are going to have the capacity faced with that to be able to bargain without some sort of a collective organization. So they're, and, and those collective organizations themselves can't exist without the right social framework um, around them. So part of it is a market failure of concentration of power um, because of network effects and so forth. But part of it is also a government failure. So these types of jobs are not going to be full-time jobs. They are not going to fall under standard employment procedure. And on the other hand, independent contractor law is almost a total failure in terms of giving any capacity to workers to resist the enormous monopsony power that platforms like this are going to have to suppress labor. So on the one hand, there's a market failure because we, there's a huge amount of monopsony power of these companies. On the other hand, our labor law framework not only is um, failing to balance that, but it's actually constraining the possibility of creating the type of work that is necessary in this type of world. Um, and finally, and maybe most importantly, there is a way in which the, just the discourse that we have around AI, the Kurzweil, et cetera, has pushed our priorities in funding technology less than the actual research themselves. Because as I said, a lot of research would be sympathetic, but the way in which things are directed, the way in which our government and our large companies and, and our elites imagine things in a direction that um, focuses on automation, that focuses on human replacement, rather than focuses on human collaboration, human coordination, and attributing value to human beings. And so I think all of these three things together conspire to, uh, to uh, create the situation we're facing. Now, um, I think I've already sort of tried to highlight uh, why it's so important that we have data cooperatives, MIDs, organizations that collectively organize people, but let me just reemphasize it quickly. First of all, people can't deal with the complexity and the terms and conditions on their own without some experts to help them do it. Uh, there's a huge monopsony problem because of the network nature of a lot of the digital industries. Um, there would be big problems with, uh, in a completely uh, de-concentrated you know, uh, world of dealing with reputation and so forth. And finally, maybe the most interesting and most important element of this is the fact that data being owned individually is not really a meaningful idea. My mother's date of birth is also my mother's date of birth, and my sister's mother's date of birth, and my grandmother's date of the birth of her first child. Almost all data are properties of several people. They are the PII of several people. If I sell my genetic data, I've sold my parents' genetic data to a large extent. 
and my siblings' genetic data to a large extent. So the notion of having an individualistic, exclusive ownership right over your data with a completely free right to alienate it would lead to a huge race to the bottom in, in this type of a world. So you need some sort of a collective organization to respect the fact that data are themselves properties of mul multiple people. Okay. Now let me just briefly run through some of the critiques of this um, uh, uh, perspective, both from the right and from the left. So from the right, I, I, I don't really like those terms either, but I, but I generally mean people who think the status quo is kind of fine and you know we should leave things to develop on their own. From the left, I mean people who sort of want this whole economy to be shut down and think it's just horrible and don't want to have anything to do with the future of technology, et cetera. Um, so um, the, the first critique that you hear from uh, the right often is, the internet is so amazing. We're getting all these huge benefits. Why screw with it? You know what I mean? Um, and I think you know, my, my basic reaction to that is, Screwing with the internet and its original conception is precisely what the platforms have been doing for the last two decades. Like, the, the whole notion of the internet was built on this idea of sort of finding a way to make open standards work so that people could, in a fluid way, uh, collaborate with each other, rather than having, you know, very concentrated walled gardens that extracted all the information from people. And so, actually, you know, I think precisely building this structure is what would allow us to get back to a lot of the dynamism that came with the internet uh, to begin with. The second argument that I hear is that, well, the amounts of money that people would get paid are so tiny. If you just take the market caps of Facebook, Google, whatever, divide them among people, you get a very tiny amount. And you know, the problem with that argument is that we're in an equilibrium where nothing is being paid for on any side. Nobody is being compensated for the work. And we have like a AI economy that's not actually producing anything very interesting as a result of that. If on the other hand, we actually charge for these services and pay people for the value, there would be just a much greater circular flow in this world. And if AI is ever going to be like displacing a third of the jobs, that better start happening. If it just stays that the value of the digital economy is like, you know, however the, much the market cap of Facebook and Google is, um, then we're not going to get the dystopian or utopian potential scenarios coming out of that. Um, and uh, uh, finally, um, from uh, the right, there's an argument that people are having, you know, a lot of fun in this sort of gamified social world and that they're doing all this work for free, why like break the spell that they're under by making them realize that they're being exploited and that they should be paid because then we're just gonna have to pay everyone for things like that. And I think my view about that is that in the long run, even though I think it is true that you can get, you can trick people into doing certain work, feudalism does work to a certain extent. I mean, societies survived for, you know, a thousand years on feudalism. I don't think you get the highest quality value out of people as, as you do if you include them as a dignified participant in the process in the long term. Okay, on the left you hear things like, well, shouldn't all data just be completely collective? You know, shouldn't it just be like owned by the state or something like that? And actually, you know, I do think there's an important extent to which data needs to be collectively controlled as I described, but the nation state is just a terrible basis for exerting that collective control because it will lead, as it already has been doing, to like huge international trade battles. Most of this production is not actually occurring in any relationship to nation state boundaries. So the notion that the nation state is the right locus for that is like really bizarre. Um, and you know, nation states have like the tendency to like, you get a 51% majority and like Marine Le Pen gets in and you know, Victor Orban get whatever. Whoever you, is your bet noir, that's what you're going to be putting in charge of the internet if you go for a primarily nation-state-based approach. Um, there's an issue of whether people really consent to the world that we're coming to. And I, I don't think individual consent is all that meaningful because there's so much network effects in this world. I think what you really need is to allow people to organize in a way that allows them to have collective agency 
over this. And uh, my, my hope is that that's what this world will offer. Now, there's a couple of deeper and harder issues. Um, I'm not sure many people in this audience will be that worried about them. These are fundamental issues with a whole range of markets about whether there are certain things that shouldn't be for sale and whether there's fundamentally asymmetric dynamics. I think that these types of um, systems that we're describing can help address those by giving people the collective agency to make choices about them and the collective power to um, be in a more symmetric bargaining position. But ultimately, if you're someone who sort of believes that just, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong about personal data being used to produce artificial intelligence that's of productive value, you're going to have trouble uh, accepting the, the ideas that we're um, proposing. Okay. So, um, What's actually going on on the ground? So uh, there's a bunch of legislation and policy issues that need to be worked out to make this sort of a world possible. And we're only starting to dip our toe into them. I, I think like the labor movement, these organizations, the politics around them, and the social context around them will have to co-evolve. Because I don't think we can know in advance exactly what these things are going to be like. And on the other hand, they're going to have trouble getting off the ground without some support from changes to policy. So the way that we're, um, we're starting, uh, what we're starting with is something called the Data Freedom Act, which we're about in the next few days um, to start circulating. We've been working with legislators in California, Colorado, uh, Canada, and US federal um, on this. And this is a, a act that would create this category of organizations that will be called data cooperatives. Um, and that uh, will um, basically play this intermediary type role in trying to define what their legal responsibilities uh, and rights are. But there's a bunch of other stuff that needs to happen. One of the most interesting uh, uh, and challenging ones has to do with employment. So current employment contracts, pretty much all state that like any data that you create at work belongs to the company. And that was based on an era and a set of assumptions where that was perfectly reasonable. In fact, most people would not. But nowadays, it could well be that like 90% of the value that you actually end up creating at work has to do with the data assets that you're bringing to them. And if, there's, if that's not even being considered in current contracts, and there's a whole bunch of defaults in the common law and so forth around that. There's, there's the potential of us very quickly getting into a really dystopian situation just by default, by not having thought through any of that stuff. So I think that's a super important area to develop. Um, a second, uh, another thing that I think is really interesting is trying to think of a more public goods type perspective on what we've thought of as um, the protections for workers. So, you know, health insurance, um, uh, uh, the ability to take time off work, um, pensions, things like this. We used to think of those in labor law as the responsibility of the employer. And I actually think there's good reasons for that, having to do with monopsony power and whatever. But now if you are going to have 50 different employers, because all these different people are getting data from you for different purposes, your health and sanity and productivity are now really kind of like a public good for all of those different companies. And we need to start thinking about a way to have both contributions but also public matching funds to make an efficient market for public goods supporting uh, people. And, and there's a great discussion of that in this book by um, Mary Gray and Sid Surrey called Ghost Work, which also talks about the problems that people are at the vanguard of this, that the labelers and the temp workers and so forth are facing right now. Um, another critical thing is privacy law. So privacy law, I think, is pretty much fundamentally broken because it's based on this very individual notion of privacy. And that's just not consistent with the actual way that data works in social networks and so forth. So I think that you know, well-intentioned and in some ways steps in the right direction in terms of opening a conversation that GDPR was in Europe. It's, it's just not conceptualizing of the problem in the right way. So uh, there's a bunch of progress that needs to happen there. So as you can tell, like 
everything that I'm talking about is like a mix of regulation and deregulation because like that's not even like I, I don't think that this thing of like more state or less state is the right way to think about things. The question is how can we restructure the world so that we have a socio-technical system that actually supports humans having reasonable agency and having the ability to have dignified careers and so forth. Now an alternative that is that we're both engaged with but in some ways sort of competing with is something you might have heard of called data uh, dividend legislation. So this is the notion that a state, maybe state of California or a national government, would just tax these companies and then give a you know, sort of universal basic income based on, the, on that tax to the citizens. So um, in some ways you can think of that as like treating that state as being like one of these mediators of individual data. But um, I think there's a lot of reasons to think that a state or na nation state is not the right basis for this because it would violate all sorts of international trade things. How do you even figure out how to divide it among those countries? Everything that goes on with international politics would then just get wrapped in to the discussions around what are really bargaining issues about labor. And I think a much more attractive vision is for a whole range of um, uh, different jurisdictions, uh, like the states and uh, international governments we're working with, to pass relatively similar legislation that empowers these organizations to self-organize and to have you know, the power to bargain and to become this new extra nation state democratic organization that can bargain for people's uh, value in this setting. Okay, but it's not just legislation that is important here. Technology itself is an important part of making it possible to keep track of and uh, to really instantiate this, this type of situation. So there, this is uh, something I'm working on with Nicole and Morlika, Matt Jackson, Kim Cameron, Kalia Young, others um, about um, it's kind of an alternative to a blockchain structure for allowing people to manage uh, their data. And the basic idea of it is very related to this notion that all data is partially collective, but only partially collective. And for each datum, it's going to be different partial. So if you think my mother's maiden name is shared with other people in my family. My city of birth is shared with people, you know, who were involved in my birth. Um, uh, my first kiss is shared with my first kiss. Um, so all of this information pertaining to me is shared with other people, but who it's shared with is different for each piece of information. And that leads to a vision where really we think of the individual, what it is to be the individual, is an intersection of different collectives that that individual is a part of. Now, I don't have time to really go into it too much, but building a data structure based on this, where you basically have a list of all your personal data and attached to each datum, you have links to all the other people that share copies of that datum. And then you also have a network of trust uh, of people who you're willing to take their word on something. Allows you to actually do a huge amount that's not possible in either the platform or the blockchain world because it allows you to basically build paths of trust proving particular claims in a way that is specific to people and to social structures rather than some global, uh, global truth. And I think that that has a lot of power for having a pluralistic um, uh, society and is the perfect foundation for these types of mediators of individual data because it allows for knowing who are the natural set of people who should be organizing themselves uh, collectively. That's an example. But more broadly, uh, there's this group at Microsoft, uh, which I think is going to be called the Pluralistic Technologies Group. I just moved out of research into the office of the Chief Technology Officer to lead a new research organization uh, that was founded by Darren Lanier, who's one of my closest collaborators. He's a founder of virtual reality. Um, and Vi Hart and um, M. Eifler work there as, as well as others. And what we're really working on is trying to imagine an alternative to the AI automation vision of the future of technology, which is based on the notion of facilitating 
pluralistic human collaboration in an open society rather than automating uh, and centralizing uh, decision making. And um, that has all sorts of different components. Many of the technologies I've mentioned before about uh, augmented reality, about understanding machine learning, are all related to that vision. But really what we're trying to do rather than, and, and we're working on individual components of it, is to provide a, a broad alternative to the Kurzweil narrative that talks about what is this way that we can go? Why might that be good for Microsoft? Why that, might that be good for society? Why might pluralism and openness and a diversity of different collective interconnections in sort of a de Tocquevillian way be a more powerful foundation for the future of technology actually and actually allow you know pluralistic societies to compete with the models that maybe folks like the Chinese government and so forth are trying to build that are much more built around this notion of centralized AI. Why might that actually allow, once again, pluralistic societies to win out over hyper-centralized ones? So um, the message I, I really want to leave you with is that like, the future is not determined. The path of technology is not determined. Different societies develop different technologies based on their values. If the Nazis had won World War II, I'm sure that a whole bunch of biological stuff would have developed in a way that's fundamentally different than the way that technologies developed in Russia, which were different than the way that technology developed in, in the United States because of our value system. And that way that value system leads us to imagine the future of technology, to invest in it, and to create the social institutions that support it. You know, this is Isaac Asimov's drawing. This is um, Star Trek. This is from Ursula Le Guin. And this is from the Seasteading. Uh, Institute. So all of these are visions of what the future might look like. And, and the future is not there for us to react to. It's for us to collectively imagine and to choose the path that we want to be on and to build the social technology uh, and governance and so forth along with the physical technology that are necessary to create that. And so I think rather than you know saying, oh, automation is coming, let's give everyone a UBI, et cetera, we should instead say, what is the type of world that we want to live in? Can we build technologies that make that competitive with other systems so we don't just get invaded and taken over? Um, and I think that the answer is if we have a thoughtful conception of pluralism, yes, we can do that. Um, and we can do it together as part of collective organizations, social movements that actually make that possible. And that's what I uh, have been devoting most of my time to recently. So one thing is at Microsoft, but even more time goes into this thing called the Radical Exchange Foundation, which is an uh, organization that Stephanie mentioned I founded um, that uh, brings together artists, entrepreneurs, uh, academics, and uh, activists, uh, including government leaders from around the world. Uh, Sam actually attended our and spoke at our conference. Um, to uh, try to work on developing this type of a vision of political economy as technology, evolving political economy to allow for more uh, um, effective human collaboration. So with that, I'm, I'm very happy to take questions. I hope I didn't run on too long. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.